It's Thursday, February 9th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday was the House Oversight Committee's first, very first hearing of the term. Twas about Hunter Biden's laptop. I associate myself with the remarks of the blue bandanaed gentleman from Maryland, Rep. Jamie Raskin, wearing a headscarf because he's undergoing chemotherapy treatment. He pointed out that Elon Musk bought Twitter, made hiring and firing decisions, which is his right as owner of a private company. Raskin continued, Those decisions, however heroic or imbecilic you think they might be, are protected by the First Amendment in the United States of America. Officially, Twitter happens to think they got it wrong about that day or two period. In hindsight, Twitter's former CEO, Jack Dorsey, called it a mistake. This apology might be a statement of regret about the company being overly cautious about the risks of publishing contents of potentially hacked or stolen materials, or it may reflect Craven's surrender to a right-wing pressure campaign. But however you interpret it, the apology just makes the premise of this hearing all the more absurd. The professional conspiracy theorists who are heckling and haranguing this private company have already gotten exactly what they want, an apology. What more do they want? And why does the U.S. Congress have to be involved in this nonsense when we have serious work to do for the American people? Exactly. What are we doing here? There was no evidence that the government interfered. This, this hearing, this committee, it's about the government. Now, the story, the post story was suppressed for two days. Twitter employees, Twitter ex-employees, those hauled before Congress, even they admit they got it wrong, but it was suppressed. And the facts contained within the story have either been borne out or at least not been rebutted. And the laptop is real. It is Hunter's. It wasn't tampered with, according to private experts who various media companies hired to vet it, real media companies like CBS and the Washington Post. And that's why in this war over disinformation, it helps to get all your facts perfectly correct. I think Raskin did. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did not. A whole hearing about a 24-hour hiccup in a right-wing political operation. That is why we are here right now. And it is, it, it's just a, an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. We could be talking about abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights. But instead, we're talking about Hunter Biden's half-fake laptop story. So here's the problem. In that clip, viewed millions of times, millions more times than anything else from that hearing, the terms of the debate are now how true, false, or half-false the Hunter Biden laptop story was. And the answer is, the story was true. I mean, it was mostly true. It's the sort of story that would have been phrased differently by other media companies if they knew then what we know now. You'd like to think they wouldn't have sat on it. You would like to think that the hundreds of security officials who wrote a letter saying this is the sign of Russian disinformation would know not to do that now. But yeah, the answer is it ain't half false. The conclusions and framing of the original New York Post story were unfavorable to Joe Biden. There were strong hints that Hunter's dealings in Ukraine must have been known by his father. That remains unproved. But that's different from false. It's not false. The thesis of AOC's ire is that the official workings of Congress should not be used to spread disinformation. But she buttons her statement 
with less than accurate information. Oh, sure, progressives and liberals know what AOC meant or don't care if they call Republican operatives false or if she smears the New York Post. They like her passion. They love the fact that her dunk went viral. And I would say it is a good diss. It's just not, strictly speaking, accurate information. On the show today, I spiel about the online training modules I took voluntarily to navigate the now personal task of refugee resettlement, which we are engaged in. Our GoFundMe campaign that I've talked about for the family we're hosting is over $12,000 thanks to your generosity. Links to how to donate in the show notes. But first, Stolen Youth Inside the Cult of Sarah Lawrence tells the story of con man Larry Ray and his 10-year grip over a group of young people. The series follows the cult's origins up until its recent demise. Premiering tonight on Hulu is the three-episode story. We sit down with director Zach Heinzerling and Dan Levin, who was a part of that cult until he was the first to get out. They're both up next. Larry Ray was an adult in his 40s who moved into his daughter's residence at Sarah Lawrence College and proceeded to take over the lives and warp the realities of a group of students. The Sarah Lawrence sex cult was the tawdriest way to put it. And that is indeed how the New York tabloids played this story you've probably heard of. The most sensitive, humane, journalistic way to experience it is to watch Hulu's new three-episode series, Stolen Youth. I'm joined by director and one of the subjects of the documentary and executive producer, uh, Zach Heinzerling is the director, and Dan Levin joins me. He's in the documentary. He was uh, under the thrall of Larry Ray. We'll find out all about that. Gentlemen, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Dan, I want to get to it, but before you joined this uh, little call, I was complimenting Zach, and my listeners should know, this is such an excellent documentary because the subtext and implication isn't, how can those people fall for it? And it's not even, how can this Svengali spin his web? And in fact, I noticed that not only metaphorically was Larry not centered, that's the word, literally, he's almost not, I would say he's not in the center of any shot that I could think of. Even when a still photo from his youth is displayed, he's somewhat off to the side. That had to have been an intention, right, Zach? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you you kind of hinted at it, but a lot of these cult stories you know, really end up feeling judgmental towards the victims. You know, how could this happen? You know, these these uh, activities that these people are uh, voluntarily involving themselves in seems so absurd and outside the the, the realms of reality uh, that certainly it couldn't have happened to me. Um, there must be some magic potion, some su- supernatural element to this that excuses it from the the realm of of me or or the people that I know. Um, And I think, you know, what you actually find is that the the elements of of what Larry did are actually pretty commonplace. You know, you see them in domestic abuse relationships. You see them in relationships with loved ones in the workplace. Um, 
you know, it's a process of um, humiliation, bullying, uh, embarrassment, um, you know, which starts from love bombing, uh, you know, elements of this we see in lots of, of documentaries right now. But I think the process of kind of normalizing uh, the word cult and understanding it as a series of, you know, calculated uh, manipulations, much of which you can relate to and you've probably experienced, um, you know, is a part of the fabric of, of this project. And, you know, I, I think um, in the end, you know, we were, you know, trying to, um, allow audiences to empathize with, with the survivors and see how it did happen and not view it so much from a, from a distance of, of the kind of, you know, when you think about the, the Kool-Aid drinking, you know, cult members of, of, of the past. So, you know, and hopefully that's what, what, what we've achieved. Yeah, you're right. Because even the word cult, it does connote something different from another word you used, which is abuse. And I think now the kind of people who maybe enjoy listening to podcasts about cults would never ask, how could you allow yourself to be abused? But they will ask, how could you fall for a cult? But it's really the same question, or it has so much overlap. And I don't know, Dan, when when people, I don't know if they've literally said that to you, but you must have felt that that was implied in the judgments of others. How do you answer? Yeah, I mean, I think that the conversation around um, coercive control experiences, experiences with cults, uh, has a long way to go. We think of these as really foreign or sort of fringe experiences, and that makes it that much harder to comprehend when you're actually experiencing it, because you think that this is not something that happens to people like me. Um, I think this Right, sort of, and you probably compare yourself to what you think of cults, like a guy in sheets or Jonestown exactly. or Africa or religion or something like that, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, the reality is that uh, each experience like this has its own unique characteristics. And it's what we're talking about is just sort of a failure of language, right? The word cult uh, isn't quite expansive enough to contain everything that probably should fall under that umbrella. I think that Zach's right to compare it in certain ways to something like domestic violence. It's not exactly the same, but it's interesting to think about the ways that, you know, we wouldn't ask someone uh, who just got out of a relationship where they were being abused, you know, why did you stay? Um, you know, and we ask the same questions of cult members. I get that question all the time. But you did. I mean, we're jumping ahead, but you were one of the one of the people who left. I mean, there's. I guess you could put them in maybe th the people who came across Larry, the people who you lived with in a few categories, right? There are a few of them, like your uh, friend Raven, who vehemently rejected it and never fell for it or never came under his thrall. And then there were others. I mean. There were two women who were uh, indicted along with him, or one was indicted and one was with him pretty far until the end. And you were kind of in the middle, but you extracted yourself early. Because I think from what I got from the doc documentary, whatever else was going on, you did have a self-preservation instinct and you recognized I'm being abused. Or was it something else? Was it something more desperate? Like, I don't have the answers to his questions and I should. Well, first of all, I think what the documentary does so well is show all of these different uh, perspectives. Uh, the, as you mentioned, Raven, the people who didn't get quite pulled into Larry's orbit, the people who did, and then these different methods of survival, mine being one of them, 
Raven, for example, who was my girlfriend at the time, I, I think would gladly tell you that the reason she suspected Larry from the beginning is that she had been exposed to other sort of controlling, abusive men like him before and was kind of keyed up for this type of behavior. Whereas I grew up a little bit sheltered, a little more trusting, uh, and would never have imagined anything like this could happen. As far as uh, me getting out, I, I was the first one to leave uh, and I, I got myself out. And I would say it was mainly a kind of a survival impulse. I mean, I could tell you the story of the series of abuses that kind of escalated and my questioning it more and more over time and kind of testing uh, what was true and what was false. But when it came down to it, it was just that I felt like this guy uh, is going to kill me and that I don't really care whether or not what he's saying is true. I just need to trust my gut feeling that I've got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to leave my listeners disoriented and it's all laid out very clearly in the documentary, but this guy is the father of one of your housemates. It wasn't a dorm per se, right? That's sort of been misreported. It was, you know, upperclassmen or at least sophomores decide to live together in a house, an experience we all have. Pretty weirdly, one of your housemates' fathers comes and doesn't leave and he's an ex-con and she laid the... uh, foundation that isn't it sad that he has no place to go. So I'll start with that. This wasn't addressed in the documentary. Back in 2009 in Sarah Lawrence, was his status as an ex-con, was the idea of we should have a lot of sympathy for the ex-con very much in the air then? And did it make you or those in your house more reluctant to say, get this older guy out of here than you would be if the circumstances were, were different then? I would say that Sarah Lawrence generally was an extremely non-judgmental place. Um, and that has a lot of, there's a lot of good that comes from that. Um, but there's also maybe a reason that we uh, think critically and, and judge things. Um, you know, Sarah Lawrence was actually all about no matter uh, what age you were, you could take any class. So part of it was actually this sort of anti-ageism that was built in. Obviously, Larry uh, is an extreme example. But mostly our friend Talia had been telling us this story for years, that she'd been separated from her dad, that she'd been living in homeless shelters, that she'd been separated from her sister, he'd been unjustly imprisoned. Um, And most of all, you know, I just didn't care all that much. I was busy with other things. I was doing college and this guy, you know, it seemed like it made her happy. I had seven other roommates who, you know, no one else was standing up and saying he shouldn't sleep on the couch and I wasn't going to be the one to do it. So, you know, it's fine. And then it wasn't. Right. And then he picks someone and then he preys on them and then he insinuates himself into their lives. Do you think, and this is one thing that was left unanswered and maybe because you don't know, when, what was his intention from the beginning? Do you think he had much of this planned out or, or what, what do you think? I would say, and I'd be curious to hear Zach's take on this. I mean, my feeling is that, you know, part of the reason I didn't leave for a long time is because I thought I needed the answer to that question before I left. I thought, you know, I I need to clearly understand, is this guy manipulating me? Is he trying to extort us for money? Is he a psychopath? Is this actually, does he intend to help us, but he doesn't know he's bad at it or he's really doing harm? And just getting caught up in that maze, which I think is intentionally uh, impossible to exit, uh, is part of what kept me there. So I don't know the answer. It might be unknowable. I think the easiest thing is just to say he's sick. Um, But, you know, what else do you do with that? 
Yeah, what do you think, Zach? Yeah, I think with a lot of these, you know, other cult stories, the the sort of goal of of the manipulator is much more obvious, right? It's usually sex, power, control, money, you know, Ranieri, um, you know, it, it, it's 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 so it's it's a pyramid scheme. I think in this instance, it's it's like, I mean, what it boils down to is all of these people are traumatic um, narcissists, and they all are are probably uh, psychopaths and they probably all were experienced some kind of, you know, trauma at a young age that, that gave them this kind of de- delusional need to, uh, for self aggrandizement. And Larry like checks all those boxes. And I think, you know, the sickness that, that he had probably, you know, from a young age metastasized until here he finds himself, um, you know, it sort of, the bottom uh, of, of, you know, just out of prison and, um, you know, sort of ripe for, for further, you know, parasitic manipulation. Like he's a, he's a parasite. And the real difference here is, is he was, these were not a group of people seeking some godlike figure to answer their problems. Like Larry was seeking them. Uh, and I think that's a, also a big difference in, you know, some of these other cult stories where you're subscribing to a dogma and you reach out about, you get the pamphlet or whatever. Right. He seeks, he seeks the wounded. Usually the cult leader knows how to seek out the wounded souls, the lost lambs. These are just seven kids in an apartment. Yeah. So I don't think there is an answer. You know, I think it's, I think it's a combination of, of, you know, I, I think they all sort of revolve around uh, control and a, a, a uh, you know, his, his sickness was that, um, you know, his perversion really, uh, was, was control, but, but to, uh, um, you know, uh, a beyond imaginably sickening degree. And I think that's why when he was convicted, you know, that's why when he was arrested, you know, he was living, uh, in a house, um, sleeping on the floor with a junk all around, you know, this wasn't someone who was, you know, sleeping on the millions of dollars he had made in his Ponzi scheme, uh, from his, you know, uh, incredible scheme, money-making scheme, you know, he, he was essentially, um, a sick shell of a person, which is how, you know, I think Daniel first described him to me. Does that, make you feel worse or help you in some ways, Daniel? Yeah, I think it's hard, you know, for any survivor to figure out how to think about their abuser after the fact. You know, I I went to his sentencing and that was the first time that I saw him. I was in the same room as him since I had left. You know, and the, the person who hurts you inflates in your mind over time. I was terrified that he would be around every corner for many years first speaking out about this when he was there was not even a whiff of an arrest or an indictment was terrifying. And then seeing him in that room, you know, it's a human being, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, a big guy and a creepy guy, but I don't think that I need to expend all that much more energy thinking about Larry Ray or what he thinks or why he does what he does. You know, it's like this guy is awful and that's all I know. How much of the movie did you work on as it was being assembled? Um, so I was involved with, I mean, Zach and I were in conversations throughout the whole thing. I, I wasn't a part of the edit or anything like that, I, but I think an interesting part of this process was figuring out um, how to balance how much creative 
input uh, I should have. And I think a lot of it felt like working together just to help Zach get into a frame of mind where he could conceptualize the experience uh, and what survivors would feel and think about this and then kind of do what he does best with the material. So what did you learn from either watching the raw footage or contemplating it after you saw it? It is so rare that anyone who is abused, uh, as, as someone who goes through sexual abuse, as a man who experienced sexual abuse, um, you know, I pushed those memories down for a really long time and then they became almost impossible to believe, right? It's so absurd what happened. It's easy to look back. Now we have evidence. But when I was just in the world and there was no evidence and I, it was just in my memory and all of my friends were still with him or in the wind, uh, it was incomprehensible. And I get this really rare experience of getting to see, to corroborate my memories uh, against this video. Um, so it was validating. I mean, it was really crazy to see these things that I only half remembered, some of which I didn't remember at all, that you referenced me the video where he's holding my tongue with pliers and hitting me with a hammer, I have zero, zero recollection of that. And that's a really bizarre experience as a human being. Huh. Did your therapist say that that's you protecting yourself and that it'll be good if it comes back? Or how did you deal with watching that for the first time? Yeah. So I, I've learned a lot about uh, trauma and memory over the past couple of years. And so, yeah, the way that you log long-term memory kind of shuts off in the middle of like a extreme survival situation. So you're just pure short-term. Um, so yeah, it's, it was my brain kind of not putting that into my, my psyche. Um, and I, you know, I originally had to watch back a lot of footage just in the process of um, trial prep and working with prosecutors um, so, you know, I've seen all kinds of things that I never thought I would see. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm lucky to have had a lot of really incredible therapy that has helped me to integrate this experience. Plus, I think that there's a lot of real value to getting to take what happened to you and put it in some kind of order and have kind of a narrative understanding of your own experience. Otherwise, it's just chaos that feels uh, bigger than you. Um, but yeah, it's been pretty, uh, it's challenging. A lot of these things are really hard. I don't want to minimize that. Daniel Barban Levin is the author of Sloanham Woods 9. Sloanham Woods was a reference to the housing where he and his roommates met Larry Ray. And he is a co-producer of the new documentary, Stolen Youth on Hulu. The director of that documentary is Zach Heinzerling. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And now the spiel. Wow. That online training module really blew me away in terms of form and information. Said no one ever, except maybe me, in a way, I will explain. We are hosting the Deniushkine family, 
And we have asked you for donations, and you've responded mightily. Uh, it's in the show notes. It's on mikepasca.com to contribute to our GoFundMe. And the way I'll give you a little background as to how they came into our lives, this family of Ukrainian refugees. An agency who works with Ukrainian refugees called Nova reached out and said, hey, we see you have a basement apartment that's open. And so Michelle and I talked about it, and we said, well, if we could, we should. And that is maybe the ethic that should inform your decision if you want to give us money or not. I hate pushing too hard, but again, the links are in the show notes. Um, If we could, we should. So we did. But this group, Nova, their criteria for us saying yes seemed to be, you have two warm bedrooms. And we do, so they can stay, but... We don't want them to just stay. We want them to advance, to thrive in America. So how to do that? I began researching how other people do it, advice, official programs, and I came across a state department initiative. The Department of State and Health and Human Services announced it is starting Welcome Corps, an initiative through which vetted Americans who make certain promises can sponsor refugees coming into this country. State has historically only relied on nonprofit organizations to resettle refugees. They call this the most significant update to the program in 40 years, reading from their official press release. And the background on this is that the Biden administration, somewhat appalled by the stinginess and nativism of the Trump administration and their closing down of refugee programs and their disincentivizing resettlement, the Biden administration decided to do something about it, pledged to welcome 125,000 refugees into the country each year in 2022 and 2023. They did not get there last year, but there's still a chance they might. Two reasons. One's a sad reason, that there is a new population of refugees in desperate need, Ukrainians, like our family. And unlike Afghanistan, security requirements are different for them, not lower necessarily, but just the fact that Ukrainians have records and the records are accessible in online repositories speeds the process of Ukrainians coming to the United States. But the other reason why we could be welcoming 125,000 refugees is the Welcome Corps. It's a chance for individuals, specifically groups, not just one person or one family, to pledge to support refugees. This is how Welcome Corps is described officially. Sponsors will go through a screening process and put up $2,275 per refugee to provide initial support for the individual or family's first three months, such as a security deposit for an apartment, new clothes, and furniture. After that period, the refugees will become eligible for other federal assistance. The hope is they will have found jobs and become self-sufficient. Okay. None of that happened with us. No requirement, no, the, the fa- our family was screened, but we'd have to put up $22.75 per person or almost $10,000. Literally, Nova just asked, hey, do you have a space for this family who desperately needs a space? Now, they were here, Sergei Svetlana Dimayasha. They were here because they were sponsored, a friend of a friend, but the space in that place was tight. They were only supposed to stay there for four days. They stayed four weeks because this family didn't want to kick out the Deniushkinas, but after four weeks, it became untenable. They moved to a pretty cold and dangerous apartment in a not-so-great part of the city, and now they're with us, and we're with them. 
fine. But again, we didn't have to put up the money, which is one of the reasons that we sponsored this GoFundMe. Uh, the 10000 is what we would have had to put up with the State Department, plus that terrible apartment cost them $3,300 in rent. It was unheated. We're trying to make them whole about that. But then remember I said, not only would there be money, but there'd be training. So I sought out what this training was, and this is where the online module I mentioned in the beginning comes in. I found out through welcomecore.org, there were online worksheets and video interactives and checklists and quizzes. And I, perhaps insanely, haven't taken many of these in a corporate setting before, I voluntarily subjected myself to an online training. At first, my instincts were whenever I see a quiz in one of these things, I always say, oh, I know how to answer this without even reading the content because they're so poorly worded. Here, here's uh, after 83 slides, the point of which of all of them is we're here to set up our new neighbors for success, not to do things for them. Okay, here's a question. You ready? See if you can get this one right. Sponsorship is about, here are your choices, working for a refugee, adopting a refugee, or partnering with a refugee. And then it goes on and working through various tasks with them or for them. I mean, the wrong answer is so wrong that if you choose it, it's not even grammatical. Like, who would choose sponsorship is working for a refugee and working through various tasks for them? Redundant. Yes, it's partnering with and working with them. So I I told myself I need to set aside my vast skill set, all my training in standardized tests, put aside the fact that I could master these, I could probably get an A on this training module and just take from it what I could. And so I did, but it was hard. Designing modules is about the fear, not that your audience will be bored or that your module will be didactic, or that it will be blatantly obvious. Because if it's obvious, that means that the trainee now possesses the correct information. The fact that they possessed it on the way in, that doesn't matter. It's about the fear that someone somewhere, the dimmest person who sits before your training module might get it wrong. Not that someone halfway intelligent or an eighth of the way intelligent, but someone almost entirely unintelligent might take your training module and not get the point. Module designers live in abject terror of the stupidest person sitting before their module getting it wrong. This makes us the non-stupidest person, eh, not a great audience in terms of interest or in terms of actually gleaning actionable advice from a training module. Still, got to put this inside. I know there's something there. There could be useful information. And guess what? There was. If only by hitting the main point over and over again that we are not here to do for the refugees, we are here to do with the refugees, to step aside and facilitate their navigation through the system. After the 800th time, I said, I got it. I got it. And I really did. The module was intent on pointing out all the things that might seem obvious to us, but might seem odd to them. For instance, they note, when shopping in supermarkets, our milk selection might be different from the milk selection they're used to. Okay, I hadn't considered milk. But in case I hadn't, then they introduce a video testimonial from a refugee who has this reflection. While there are similarities, shopping in a U.S. supermarket can be daunting. 
There are so many new foods and even more options. A newcomer may, for example, need support in understanding the different types of milk. And then a few lessons later in a section that's called part of our learner journey, they bring up this example. It's not easy to find our ways and get adjusted. For example, you go to the store and I just get to milk, but there are so many options. Whole milk, 2%, low fat, which one? So when Sergei and Svetlana first entered our apartment, I didn't say, hey, are the beds comfortable? Hey, do you want to put the kids' toys in this corner? Do you want to know what the Wi-Fi is? I was just freaked out about the milk. Hey, we bought you some milk. I don't know if you like whole or skim. You might not understand skim. When I was young, I thought it was skin, but it's skim. It's something different. But if you like whole, that's cool. We have whole. I don't know. Maybe you think of whole milk as just milk and you don't understand what the word whole refers to. I'm here for all your milk needs and questions. Call me any time I became lactose hypervigilant. But eventually my training kicked in. I took a breath. I chilled, unlike Parmalat, which doesn't need to be chilled, available in whole chocolate, many varieties. Oh no, I've already said too much. All right, breathe. Remember this slide from the key mindset module. Be trauma-informed by using the strategies outlined in this unit. Be mindful of the power and privilege you have in this role. Keep your power and privilege in check by bullet point letting the newcomer lead, and supporting newcomer needs, and co-developing plans with newcomers. All right? Privilege checked, milk issues tabled, we proceeded. And they led, and I, at best, co-developed. Michelle, who has done most of the work, helped them get appointments with the Department of Education. You, everyone who's donated, have certainly done a massive amount of help. If they needed to go to an appointment, we say, sure. Do you want my help in how to get there? Do you want me to show you on a map? Do you want me to show you which subway or bus to take? Immediately upon doing this, I thought of a question contained in interactive, I think it was 843 question. How would you respond? The newcomer asks, can you drive me to the supermarket? A, I'd be happy to. Just give me a ring anytime I can help over these next 90 days. B, let's take the bus together. And then you could start going on your own anytime you want. Or C, sorry I can't, that's not part of my responsibility and driving you is a liability. All right, if you're going to go for C, why not throw up a D, drive you? Kind of lazy, huh? How are you guys going to beat the Taliban slash Russians slash Lord's Resistant Armies, Cineola Cartel, etc.? Okay, so not all the slides were the best. (laughs) And what was actionable is sometimes stuff I knew already, sometimes somewhat stuff I needed to be told. But there was good stuff there. Like when dealing with government clerks, literally stand behind the newcomer. Why? This will allow the newcomer, if they need you, to make the conscious decision to literally turn to you without defaulting to you as the person who's going to navigate the interaction, right? Also communicates to the clerk, hey, your job is to help the newcomer, not me. You know what? That's great advice. And just the process of having taken the training and said, well, that's the training. Now I guess I know what the State Department wants me to know. It gives Michelle and I a little bit more solidity in this shared journey with the Deniushkinas. So I say, thank you, Welcome Corps. Even if 98% of the training was superfluous, I'll take the 2%, which is not necessarily the milk you have to choose. But if it is, we'll be here and we'll work it out together. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions and Milk Procurement. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. It's so damn hot. Milk was a bad choice. <laughs>